0: Now, Adam Sterling on CFAX 1070. Time now for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defence Lawyers. Michael, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Good to be here. Interesting legal news stories on the docket today. Up first, the foreign buyer's tax, a challenge to that tax, unsuccessful at trial. Set this up for us.
1: Yes, indeed. So this was a challenge uh, brought to the tax. The person who was the representative individual... Uh, Miss Lee, who is a uh, resident in Burnaby. Um, she moved to Canada in 2013 in order to complete a master's degree in public administration at the University of Saskatchewan. Um, she entered into a uh, contract uh, to purchase a residence in Langley, uh, put down a deposit, uh, and then uh, before she was required to complete, this foreign buyer's tax came into effect, and it meant that she had to pay an additional $83,850. Um, and so she would be the sort of the, the plaintiff in this action. Uh, but it's clear that what was intended is to ultimately, if the matter succeeds, uh, to get the thing uh, certified as a class action to try to uh, recover the money paid by all of various misses, you know, Miss Lees that might have paid large amounts of money uh, because of their uh, immigration status effectively.
0: An, an enormous sum one would suspect.
1: There's no doubt about that. There's a lot of money on the line here. Uh, the uh, council that are acting uh, for Miss Lee and ultimately trying to get the matter certified include uh, uh, Miss Brazil who's a, sort of a leading class action council from Vancouver and uh, Joe Arvey amongst others mm-hmm. um, and so the decision that just came out uh, was a decision in what's called a summary trial. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit of explanations required for that. Um, so what happened uh, is that the uh, lawyers for Miss Lee tried to, uh, wanted to get this certified as a class action to represent all the people that would have paid a whole bunch of money in this foreign buyers tax, and the procedure that the court decided upon was that before deciding whether the thing should be certified as a class action, they should have one of these quote summary trials. And the idea with a summary trial is that it's sort of an expedited process if a case is one which can be properly dealt with based on affidavit evidence rather than the usual procedure of calling live witnesses for everything. So it it generally works where you've got not a great deal of factual dispute. You have a legal dispute, not a, you know, he said, she said case, but instead, you know, what does she said mean? Right.
0: All right. So yeah, uncontested so, facts,
1: and so okay, I understand. So that, that's no. what it is. So both sides uh, uh, proceeded in that fashion and put a bunch of evidence before the uh, judge in the form of affidavits. Now, one of the interesting elements of that is, is that both sides uh, showed up with a uh, litany of expert reports, and bear that in mind when we talk about the next story. Hmm. So each side showed up with a group of expert reports, uh, and the the case dealt with really two. Arguments. One argument uh, that uh, Miss Lee was making, or counsel were making, was that the law in British Columbia, this foreign buyers tax, was outside of the provincial jurisdiction uh, because of the division of powers between the provinces and the federal government. Uh, and the essence of that argument um, is that uh, the federal government has, although we use more arcane language, responsibility for essentially immigration issues. Right, So they argued that, look, uh, this was really some effort to control uh, immigration, um, and uh, therefore the province didn't have authority to deal with this. Um, that didn't succeed. But I think perhaps the more interesting argument here um, is uh, an argument uh, dealing with the claim that the legislation, the foreign buyer's tax, is discriminatory uh, in the context of Section 15 of the Charter. Section 15 of the Charter says this, every individual is equal before and under the law and has the right to the equal protection and equal benefit of the law without discrimination and in particular without discrimination based on race, national or ethnic origin, color, religion, sex, age, or mental or physical disability. And then there's some exceptions to that for um, sort of affirmative action programs effectively. So the argument was here, look, this foreign buyer's tax appears to be uh, an effort to discriminate based on national or ethnic origin or an analogous uh, ground uh, because it it uh, has disproportionate uh, effects uh, with respect to Chinese buyers of real estate.
0: So the effect is, or the disproportionate is incidental and not the purpose, in other words.
1: Well, both were argued. Okay, uh, they argue Both it has that, <laughs> it expressly does that, and then it also had that incidental disproportionate effect. Both were argued. Hmm. Now, there are a few things that are interesting in terms of how that played out. Uh, And first of all, with respect to the uh, experts that each side wanted to call or present evidence from, one of the defense, or one of, sorry, one of the plaintiff's experts uh, was a professor, Yu, who was a professor in the Department of History at the University of British Columbia. Hmm. And that professor had prepared uh, an expert report which detailed the history and review of discriminatory laws against Chinese people in British Columbia and elsewhere. Uh, and it was a uh, review of those things. Uh, and I must say, there is a very unhappy, long history of exactly that. Now, the, there is a test for uh, whether an expert evidence should be permitted. Uh, it's a two-part test. The first part of the test deals with these factors. Is the purported expert evidence relevant? Is it necessary? Uh, Is there some exclusionary rule? And then does the person have some special expertise? And then after that, there can be a weighing of whether the risks or benefits of letting it in would uh, mitigate in favor of letting it in or not. But the trial judge here concluded that uh, this evidence, the evidence from the professor about this history of discrimination, discriminatory laws, didn't make it past the first part of that test. Uh, which deals with the issue of relevance and necessity. Uh, and uh, the essence of that conclusion was that he said this, the history of such laws would be readily available to counsel in the courts and could have been a matter that was dealt with an argument. I circled the word could have, <laughs> those words could have.
0: Implying it wasn't.
1: Implying that it wasn't. And I think that is some history which is important to know about when analyzing this case. And it, that, you're quite right, it implies that it wasn't. And the judge didn't allow in that evidence. That, I think, uh, in my view, very much colors this legislation uh, and uh, how we ought to approach it. In really uh, summary fashion, some of that very unfortunate legislative history in Canada and in British Columbia includes some things that people will probably be familiar with. Uh, we had in uh, there were acts passed, including uh, an act passed which imposed a head tax people yes. have probably heard about that which the uh, express purpose of that was to reduce chinese immigration we actually passed uh, another act which expressly simply stopped chinese immigration it prohibited it uh we have a uh, very unsavory history of things in british columbia including uh in 1907 there was a uh, mob of several thousand men who broke all of the windows in chinatown rioted there Uh, And then we had, and this is another interesting thing, when you look at the history of drug laws uh, in Canada, one of the other things which occurred following that riot in Vancouver was that there was a Royal Commission struck to look into that. And some of the language in that included, and it looked into drugs as well, because one of the things which was um, argued about uh, reasons why we ought not to allow Chinese immigration was the connection and danger of the use of opium. Uh, And very interestingly, that commission that looked into things following that anti-Chinese riot in Vancouver referenced things including the, quote, baneful influences that are, quote, too well known to require comment, and it's acceptable. I'm, I'm
0: sorry, it's too clear for me to explain here. Yes. Like that's the, I, it's so obvious. I'm not going to bother to tell you.
1: It's so obvious. We're uh. all prejudiced and don't want Chinese people moving here. I need not even mention that. That's all very clear. Wow. That led to a 1908 the Opium Act, um, and that was one of the or- early origins of our drug laws. Um, there is, I think, a, a general consensus that there was a racial motivation to. Those early drug laws intended to target Chinese immigrants to Canada. Uh, Victoria had a very unfortunate uh, history in particular. We had in 1922 school trustee in Victoria tried to take all Chinese students out of regular classes and segregate them into a separate school. It was George J. Yeah. Yep. The Chinese community protested and took their children out of the schools for an entire year. Yeah. That's the background, the sort of background, that the professor had information about and the judge said could have been uh, argued about uh, in submissions. Hmm. It's not otherwise discussed in the uh, decision, but that is our very unfortunate history. And in my view, Hmm. that history should inform how we're analyzing these things. Yes. Uh, It is not how this case analyzes it. This case, uh, ultimately, the judge um, parses out the issue of uh, somebody's um, country of origin uh, and says, no, this uh, particular provision uh, doesn't simply deal with citizenship. It permits uh, an exception if somebody is a permanent resident or about to become a permanent resident. And uses that as a basis to say, no, uh, this isn't uh, legislation which would be in breach um, of the uh, what we've talked about in terms of Section 15 uh, and uh, having an impact on people based on their national or ethnic origin. Uh, and the judge concludes that even though numerically uh, it may be a, a very disproportionate impact mm-hmm. on people of uh, that are um, Chinese, Um, that he says this is not a numbers game, and even though that might be so, uh, the judge concludes that uh, people from China would be equally free to apply for citizenship or permanent residence status, uh, and uh, therefore uh, this uh, legislation is not something which would be in violation of Section 15. Uh, Interesting conclusion. Almost certainly not the end of the matter. Um, Many of these uh, would clearly be a uh, test case, yes uh, are almost certainly intended to go up the ladder. My, my guess would be uh, Mr. Arvey is off drafting a factum right now for the Court of Appeal and maybe even that leave application to the Supreme Court of Canada uh, but uh, that's the very unfortunate background of uh, uh, racially motivated uh, uh, legislation in Canada and British Columbia, and I think given that background we should be, quite irrespective of the legal analysis of it, very, very slow uh, to be passing uh, legislation which is going to have a disproportionate negative impact uh, on Chinese immigrants. Um, That we have to be very careful about. There just needs to be some added, I think, sensitivity to that impact. Um, And it's a circumstance where, at least in my judgment, uh, the assessment of whether this is a popular thing or not uh, ought not to end the inquiry because, of course, um, when you had uh, sure people rioting, uh, uh, breaking windows in Chinatown or trying to exclude uh, Chinese students from schools, uh, those may well have passed some popularity test back in 1907 or 1922. Uh, and we ought to have a different approach to that in 2019. Well,
0: that's behind the movement to rename George J. School. Was, yes. Was those actions and the riots that followed thereafter. All right. Legally speaking here on CFAX 1070. We'll continue in just a moment. Stay with us. When news breaks, Victoria counts on CFAX 1070. Projecting a likely liberal minority government at this point. And they voted in favor of a progressive agenda and strong action on climate change. i and humbled by the support from this community and the trust that they put in me. We can make a really significant contribution in a minority parliament, and we will. If it's happening, it's here. CFAX 1070. So, doing anything exciting tonight? Yeah, binge watching true crime shows. Nice. remember when exciting meant going out? Yeah, but we just got a new natural gas furnace. I just want to stay in and get cozy. Nice. energy bills must be really low uh yeah like a third the cost of electricity nice when we were younger did you ever think we'd be having this conversation no back then my parents paid the utility bills nice natural gas heating keeps you cozy for less that's energy at work visit fortisbc.com she honestly negotiated really hard so i can say that
1: she's fierce
0: well she understands people And she's a good listener. And I think that's got a lot to do with closing transactions.
1: She wasn't only a realtor, she was a friend. And she was super supportive and helpful and patient and kind, but tough when she needed to be tough. And she had our back. And what more can you ask for? Passionate, focused, remarkable results. Lisa Williams of Sotheby's International Realty Canada. Visit lisawilliams.ca. Celebrate the holiday season early with the annual pre-Christmas sale at the Royal Museum Shop. From November 8th to 17th, save 50% on selected merchandise. Museum and IMAX pass holders receive 20% off during the sale instead of the usual 10. Intriguing and unique gifts, most of which are BC made. Get your Christmas shopping done early
0: or pick something up for yourself. The pre-Christmas sale at the Royal Museum Shop, November 8th to 17th. Shop online at shop.royalbcmuseum.bc.ca. Purchase and support the Royal BC Museum. Hi, this is Raheem the Dream from Max Furniture, and we're here for everyone who's living their best condo life. If you agree that living in small spaces can be awesome, I promise we are the people to see for condo-sized furniture. So why not bring your ideas of the rooms you want to furnish to Max Furniture? No matter how big or small, our experts will fill in the blanks. We'll help you take the place where you live and turn it into the home of your dreams.
1: Max Furniture, local, family, owned and operated. 2745 Bridge Street, online at maxfurniture.com.
0: I've heard about Operation Christmas Child for years, but I couldn't understand how toys, school supplies, and hygiene items in a shoebox would mean much to a child in some far-off country. Then I learned many of the kids have never, ever received a gift. Their parents are too poor. I can't change the world. But I can pack shoe boxes that give kids some joy and tells them someone in Canada really cares. Please join me in supporting Operation Christmas Child this year. Learn how you can at SamaritansPurse.ca. You can also pack boxes online at PackABox.ca. Bob's a hard-working businessman. Would you mind showing me your socks? Abby Shola is a no-nonsense nurse. People call you Abby? No, go back in there and wash your hands. Are they the perfect match? I thought there'd be more weirdos. Not even close. You are the weirdo. CTV this fall from executive producer Chuck Lorre. A comedy about finding love. So where are you from? Nigeria. Where you least expected. That's a heck of a commute, huh? Get into an all-new Bob Hart's Abby Shola. Monday at 8.30, only on CTV. Then stream anytime. Listen to CTV Vancouver Island News at 6 every weekday. Brought to you by Commissioners Victoria. If it's happening, it's here. CFAX 1070. This is Adam Sterling on CFAX 1070. Legally Speaking continues with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, in the last story you described to us, the was it a four-part test for expert evidence? Is there a limit on the number of experts one can have in a trial, and does that figure into our next story?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. So in the last story we talked about I would like to note that the uh, province of British Columbia called a total of or presented evidence from a grand total of 6 experts in their effort to uh defend the constitutionality of the foreign buyers tax that brings us to our next story. Uh the province of British Columbia also uh tried to recently limit the number of experts that a person could call or present evidence from in an effort to establish their ICBC claim, basically. Uh, and they tried limiting that to three experts, half the number they saw necessary to defend that last action we just talked about. Uh, and so that brought a challenge, a constitutional challenge. And here's where that rub came. Uh, the, there is certainly some authority for the provincial government uh, to make laws dealing with the administration of justice in the province And the language of the Constitution in that regard speaks about uh, the administration of justice in the province, including the construction, maintenance, and organization of provincial courts, Uh both civil and criminal jurisdiction, and includes procedure in civil matters in those courts. Now, that is not the only provision that might bear on who can decide how many experts could be called in a, a car accident case, because we have another section of the uh, Canadian Constitution, Section 96, uh, which on sort of a bare reading of it, um, speaks about the authority of the federal government to appoint superior court judges. But much more has been read into that, and I think it's important that more be read into that. Um, superior Court, Section 96 court judges, have some special constitutional protections. For example, they could only be removed from office, uh, uh, if uh, there was a joint resolution of the House of Commons and Senate. They're quite well protected, and with good reason, uh, because they are making decisions often which would involve the government. So you really don't want somebody there who's at the general whim of the government.
0: Indeed, and they must not show fear or favor. Right. Yeah.
1: Now, you could also imagine how those kind of protections would be awfully hollow um, if the uh, province or federal government could just say, well, that's an interesting creature, that Section 96 court judge. We don't much like the degree of independence they're showing. You know what? Why don't we just create a tribunal? We'll appoint people on 12-month contracts and we'll just have them decide all various important issues involving us. They would be much more compliant. Well, no, you can't do that. Um, and that impor- those kind of important restrictions have been read into by courts. Uh, what is the meaning of Section 96? You-, you can't just undermine all of those protections, which... Essentially, allow us to have a an independent judiciary, not subject to the whims of the government, without a bunch of people that are on some tribunal concerned about being fired next Thursday because their decision wasn't too popular. And so that uh, those protections that protect the independence uh, of uh, judges uh, extend to uh, making decisions that deal with the sort of the core functions of that superior court. Uh, because again, uh, you can't bypass that as a government. You can't say, "Well, look, I don't really like all these uh, awards these independent judges are making. Those cost a lot. We have a dumpster fire at ICBCs." You know what? Why don't we just create a uh, you know tiny award tribunal and tell the tiny award and say that the tiny award tribunal shall make all decisions dealing with claims against ICBC. I see where you're going with
0: this. That'll save a lot of money. There are larger implications (laughs) than merely the number of experts allowed here, aren't there?
1: There are. Uh, And I must say, we are all, we should all be thankful that we have uh, this sort of an independent uh, judiciary uh, and that that independent judiciary guards their very independence because, after all, no one else is doing it uh, because in but for these sort of constitutional protections, all with well-meaning intentions, yes. uh, when the government is trying to save money and put out dumpster fires and the like, it is very, very tempting uh, to want to uh, move the levers and switches of legislation in order to advantage oneself. Uh, and that is what was going on here. Uh, you've seen uh, sort of uh, reports of, oh, how this is going to cost $400 million, how the government planned to save this large amount of money. How is it that they thought they were going to save that large amount of money? Well, uh, certainly some of that calculation may come from, you know, well, what is the cost of hiring that medical expert or the medical expert to respond to the plaintiff's uh, medical expert? But some of it, no doubt, comes from a calculation of, gee whiz, if we allow people to call all of these experts to prove just how injured they are and what it's going to cost for them to uh, recover from that, well, that's going to be expensive. And so uh, the government tried on this unilateral effort to say no more than three experts can be called to do that. Half the number the government seems to think is necessary when they're defending a claim. Well, uh, the uh, Chief uh, Justice uh, uh, Hinkson Yes. Uh, just concluded that that's not constitutionally permissible. That decision, the, deci- the unilateral decision to prevent people from calling more than um, three experts to prove their motor vehicle claim, uh, interfered with the core function and jurisdiction of the superior court. And I must say, it's a very interesting read, The Judgment. It sort of discusses the history of that and the history of the court and um, also some of those sort of fundamental things about, you know, what is the core function of the court? Uh, and ultimately, the uh, conclusion is this. Uh, I find that the impugned rule infringes on the court's core jurisdiction to control its process because it restricts a core function of the court to decide a case fairly upon the evidence adduced by the parties. The effect of the impugned rule is to require the court to play um and sort of play a function uh, in place of its traditional non-adversarial role, contrary to the principle of party presentation. And the idea there is that the concept here is, well, maybe the court could appoint some other uh, expert to deal with something, but the court has said no. Right at the core of their jurisdiction is to permit people to put before them relevant evidence, including experts if necessary, to prove their case so that an independent judge can make a decision. And if you make a rule saying you are not permitted to uh, do that in a fulsome way, that goes to the core jurisdiction of the court. You need only imagine how you could extend this a little bit further if you simply made a rule saying, if you're making an ICBC claim, you can't call any medical evidence. That would probably save a whole lot of money, but... It's well, save a whole not lot of money just not
0: giving awards <laughs> at all, right? But then we defeat the purpose of insurance, and that is to take care of people who have been injured and harmed and must be made whole.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it strikes me that sort of, uh, if somebody's looking to save money on litigation costs, right, if that's really the motivation, one of the ways that could be done would be to give ICBC a clear mandate, to, when you conclude that there is a legitimate claim to offer the person an amount of money equal to what you conclude they're likely to be awarded if they wound up going to trial. If always, you took that approach, yeah. you'd probably have fewer trials.
0: I always wonder, how do you know what you'd get from trial without going to trial if trial is the only way to know what you would
1: get? There's a good answer to that. Oh, is there? Okay. Um, hire a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, no, I, I'm just joking. There, there, there actually it used to be in a paper format. There used okay. to be There's a book used to be referred to as the sort of the meat chart where you could look up actually in an index various kinds of injuries and you could look up and see what various, uh, what courts have awarded for this particular thing in the past, and you would then see what it is. Now that's going to be online, but it's not going to be a giant mystery. If you can look at it and say, look, uh, you know, what have courts awarded for somebody who has a compound fracture of both legs? for and there <laughs> right okay. Here it is. Here's the range of what it is. And then you could compute, you know, what is this person lost in wages and that sort of thing, and you can come to a rational answer. Uh, And happily, I should say, most cases settle. Only a small number of them actually go to trial because you can usually rationally assess what that's going to be. All right.
0: Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Pleasure as always. Thank you for your time. We look forward to next week.
1: Thank you.